Take a drive through Pennsylvania. One of the first things you'll notice is the abundance of signs touting the efficiency of coal. And it's no surprise, coal here is a big business. Nowhere else in the area are you going to find a job for 70000 plus a year with just a high school diploma. But keep in mind, the history of coal is very, very bloody. You're listening to Old Timey Crimey, crimes from the golden age of yesteryear. Now, here are your hosts, Christy, Amber, and Scott. Hey, it's Old Timey Crimey. I'm Christy. I'm Scott. And I'm Amber. And we are here this week to tell you about actually two historical crimey events. But first, Race of Lights. I'm going to make a song out of that, too. I'm just going to make a song out of everything, and eventually the whole entire podcast will be me singing, and our listenership will definitely plummet. I think if you're <laughs> going to do one for it, should be like, Race of Light, and then have a chorus in the background. Ah! I love it. I love it. I'm doing it. Race of Light. Ah! <laughs> okay, so, Amber, what's your ray of light? My ray of light is that that those noises and songs did not happen before today. Uh, <laughs> um, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to the new world of COVID-19. Yeah, like, I, I don't know. Like, it wasn't a bad week, but nothing really happened. Like, I have, I have a funny story. Um, that's mortifying to me, but funny to others, if you'd like that. Let's hear it. Um, so I gave my parents my Amazon subscription and I hooked it to like their, their tablets and their TV so they can watch my Amazon. And, um, my dad accidentally hit a button. And so he calls me and he goes, Amazon's been hacked. And I'm like, what do you mean? And he starts listing. You didn't say what you mean. He goes, Dad, I deal with this shit all the time at work. Motherfucker, what'd you do, Dad? <laughs> like, I thought it, but I didn't I didn't say it. I was like, what do you mean it's been hacked? And he starts listing off um, pornographic titles. And after about the fifth one, I realize what he's reading me is my Kindle books. Oh. And, and so I have to stop him. And mind you, by now he's read about 10 different erotic book titles. And I'm like, Dad, Dad, we have not been hacked. You've accidentally hit Kindle. And he's like, what's Kindle? And I'm like, those are my books. He goes, you're kind of a sick fuck, aren't you? And I'm like, <laughs> well, I, I get it honestly. He goes, yeah, you do. And, and like, that was the end of our conversation. I'm like, I am mortified. <laughs> Jesus. Are you reading Chuck Tingle novels again? They're much worse and and much more difficult to explain to your father that you just really like to read your porn. <laughs> oh. you know, I can't I can't blame you. I mean, pounded in the butt by the handsome sentient manifestation of my Twitch stream uh, is is a good book. Um, Classic. Not pounded Classic. by anything while I practice responsible social distancing. Another great book. <laughs> <laughs> that one my, I hear is up for a lot of prizes this year. Yeah, yeah. 
And, uh, and my personal favorite, Donald Trump pounded in the butt by the handsome Russian T-Rex who also peed on his butt and then blackmailed him with the videos of his butt getting peed on. <laughs> now, if you think I'm just making shit up, these are actual titles of books on Amazon. <laughs> Yeah, I'm not going to lie. There was there was some pretty self-explanatory titles in the ones that my dad read to me. Oh, dear. Um, that there was no denying exactly what they were about. <laughs> self-explanatory titles is my new band name. And also the name of my first album and all the songs on it. <laughs> so, yeah, I guess that's my ray of sunshine. At least, like, my parents are cool um, and, like, can make jokes about it. But, yeah. uh... But yeah, so very, very awkward. <laughs> but hilarious for us. <laughs> All right. Scott, what's your ray of light? I'm going to quit this podcast and start doing erotic fiction on Amazon because apparently it sells well. <laughs> like if if it's far enough for Amber's father to get fucking think he's gotten fucking hacked by the Russian anal mob. Yeah, sure. <laughs> why not? Well, in my defense, almost all of mine were free on Kindle. Oh, we uh, authors still get paid for free stuff. Yeah, because it's like I pay for the the Kindle Unlimited because I, I read a lot of right. porn. <laughs> Nothing wrong with that. I'm not shaming anybody here. It's good money. Um, <laughs> don't ask me how I know that. Uh, <laughs> my ray of light. It was it was a bloody fucking nightmare. It continues to be a nightmare, but it's going to end up being very very cool. Uh, Yesterday, I do another podcast, and yesterday I come home, and I press the power button on my computer, and it goes, starting up. And it's like, okay, good, it's starting up. And I get, jump into the shower, and I'm thinking, okay, I'm going to come back, and my computer will be up and running. And I come out at 7.15, and it still says, starting up. And I go, okay, that's weird. So I reboot it, and it goes, starting up. <laughs> oh. And then I try to put it into safe mode. And it just goes, starting up! Motherfucker! <laughs> Absolute motherfucker. So, I'm like talking, I have a tablet, and I'm talking to the other guys on my podcast, going like, I don't know what the hell I'm going to do. And finally, finally I look over, I've got no credit card debt whatsoever in my life. And I go... Give me 45 minutes. I'll be right back. And I went and bought myself a new computer. Um, and I got, like, just a really nice a laptop computer. Like, it had the word gaming on it. And I went, okay, that's going to have some good processors. Uh, and I got this computer. I, it's, like, 20 after 8. Walmart's closing in 10 minutes. And I go, I'll take a fucking computer now. <laughs> <laughs> and I grab the computer and I'm like running through Walmart and I'm fat and it's hard to breathe in the mask. I get out to the car. It's like, motherfuckers. And then I, I slam and I go, oh shit, I need to get gas. And so I end up getting gas and then I come back to the house and it's like the fucking picture of the Russian hacker with four arms and one of them's holding a banana. And I get the computer up and running and I'm doing the podcast. And now at the end of the night though, at the end of the night, I bought a game on Steam uh, about four years ago that my computer couldn't play. So I ended up, okay, I logged into Steam, and I got the game, and holy shit, the game worked so smoothly, and it made me so happy. I had ten minutes of happiness yesterday. That's it. <laughs> 
10 That's minutes of happiness. Yeah, I deserve, <laughs> I deserve a little bit more than that, at least 12. But <laughs> I had 10 minutes of happiness, and then I went to bed and woke up and started working, and I'm still working, and I'm right here right now. That's my <laughs> ray of happiness, those 10 minutes where I played Transformers Devastation. I am happy that you are here right now. <laughs> oh, thank you. <sighs> How about right, you, Christy? Christy? What's your ray of light? <laughs> I have, I have two smaller, briefer ones. Um, one is our garden, which Jackson has worked really, really hard on, is coming to fruition. Sure, okay. Um, and we've made salsa multiple times. We've made pickles out of the cucumbers. And we have, like, fresh salads. And it's uh, absolutely amazing. And I'm going to start canning soon. And I'm terrified that I'm going to kill us both. But I'm sure everything will be fine. So that's my first one is the garden. My second one is... Um, I'm sure I've mentioned this podcast on this podcast before, um, but I listened to another episode last night that I absolutely loved and enjoyed. And so I just want to throw another shout out to it. It's The Constant, and it's a, a history of getting things wrong. And I I had realized that I'd missed like three new episodes. Like somehow I never noticed them in my feed. And I was like, okay, score. All right. And so, yeah, I listened to one of them last night, and it was absolutely delightful, and it reminded me of why I love that podcast. So, um, and Scott, you would seriously, this episode was about um, flat earthers, um, and but it goes way back, way back, like to people trying to figure out how we see light. And it's absolutely crazy and, and a really good episode. Um, and also he has an ongoing feud with Aristotle, which is a weird thing to have, but I, I love it. Like from the very first episode, he's like, fucking Aristotle. I approve of this message. Absolutely. Me too. Me <laughs> yeah, too. fuck Aristotle. I'll tell so, you what, so, I, I, I think everybody's beautiful and wonderful and, and absolutely amazing and incredible. Humanity as a whole is, is just absolutely fascinating to watch. But God fucked up at least once you, with you goddamn flat earthers. Because each and every one of you should have been a miscarriage. <laughs> oh, dear God. Tell us how you really feel. <laughs> I'm kind of so, holding back, quite honestly. I know you are. That's why I'm encouraging this. <laughs> Some people who were ready to tell how they really felt were the people involved in the Colorado Mine Massacres. Slow clap for the good segue. Yeah. Thank you. <laughs> so, uh, this is obviously in Colorado. As I said, there was a strike in 1903 that we don't have a lot to say about. Uh, but then in 1913 and 14, there was the Ludlow Strike. Now, this was at the Colorado Fuel and Iron Company, which operated in Southern Colorado, had, depending on, you know, sources very widely, yeah, 7,000 <laughs> 7, to 11,000 workers, and the company was owned by the Rockefellers. People oh, I, could... I bet they're just the nicest people to work for. Yeah, the nicest people who could absolutely afford to uh, pay people better and have better safety measures in place. I'm just saying. Nah, they don't need that. They wouldn't be happy with all the safety equipment. No, no. They're already happy risking their lives for pennies. So, Wonderful. for script, actually. So, the Colorado Fuel and Iron Company, or CF&I, was the largest coal operator in the West. Rockefeller, um, the senior Rockefeller bought it in 1902 
passed it on to his son, John D. Rockefeller Jr. in 1911. And they were really heavy in California. At one point, 75% of Colorado's Colorado's coal came from CF&I. And CF&I employed about 10% of Colorado's workforce. That is crazy. That's a lot of an entire state. That's a lot. That is a lot. They're like Walmart. Yeah. And conditions in the mines were pretty dangerous, especially in Colorado. The death rate there at the time was 7.055 per 1,000, which was about twice, over twice the national death rate of 3.15 per 1,000. So that's not a good sign. In 1913 alone, 110 miners died in Colorado, but... They're not dead, they're sleepy. They're sleepy, and they definitely didn't die mining, according to the coroner's juries, which the, like, law enforcement would stack with jurists who were on the side of the mine. So they would make sure that those, you know, if, if the coroner's jury decided that death wasn't because of the mine then the widows and orphans got jack squat. I don't like to think of it as a mine. It's more of an hours. <laughs> <laughs> That's not what the Rockefellers thought. <laughs> uh, the pay was low, and they essentially lived a life of feudalism. Like, they were semi-modern-day serfs, or semi-modern-day semi-serfs. This, um, is, were... this is not an uncommon thing. This happened a lot around here. Um, oh, yeah. If you go, there's a little town uh, just outside of Johnstown called Blau. And if you go to Blau, you'll kind of notice, oh, all the houses are built exactly the same. That's because the coal mining town built all the houses and they built them all the same so that one miner couldn't say to the other, you have a nicer house than I do. And they didn't get paid with money. They got paid in vouchers to use at the company store. Yeah, it was essentially called Scrip. It's useless anywhere else. It's useless anywhere but in the company town, which is not actual money and therefore should be illegal. And it is now. Now. Now, yeah. They were paid in tonnage of coal removed but anything else they had to do in order to get that coal out and support it and, and, and enhance safety, they didn't get paid for. It was actually called dead work, which shout out to our restaurant industry friends. Uh, side work, fun times, awesome. Making 283 to freaking pack fudge into little containers. Oh, Sorry. Fudge Flashing back. <laughs> That's exactly. I had an assistant manager helping me one night because I was having a really rough night. I'd been I, I traded somebody for side work and they had the dessert station and I didn't realize it was an absolute shit show. It was it was the messiest I'd ever seen it. And so he helped me so I could get out of there like sometime before, you know, 10 a.m. And I was supposed to be up at seven. And um, we're, we're putting the fudge into the little containers and he goes, never thought I'd be standing here packing fudge. <laughs> Just like, all right, <laughs> all right, cool, cool. So, what you lay down a lot of times to do that. <laughs> yeah, what wasn't cool was that you could not even criticize the company. So, all this 
poor treatment, you had to keep your mouth shut about because you might get blacklisted or you might get a beating. And the company also was very interested in your political activities, such as going to the ballot box. The company would supervise the voting. So guess what party could get the votes they needed? Oh, gee, I don't know. I can't imagine who would not be on the side of the worker. You know, I'm not going to lie to you guys. I actually had a boss and I'm not going to name names, but I had a boss that would before elections go around and try to figure out who everyone was voting for. And only certain people got to leave on election day to go vote in the middle of the day. Oh, my God. That is... Oh. I'm not surprised. I am absolutely not surprised. Now, I'm not- granted, it was a nine to five, so most people could try to, like, squeeze it in either early or late. Mm-hmm. But, um, like, in the middle of the day, the people that were voting for the person that they wanted would get to leave and go vote and come back. It took me a second to connect what boss you were talking about, and now I'm not surprised. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> now I'm not surprised at all. Yeah, it's 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 still going on today, um, but they would literally, like, supervise your vote. Like, they probably were looking over your shoulder. So that that that's infuriating me. I uh, I cherish voting, even though, you know, some people say it doesn't make a difference, but there's not too many other ways that I can at least pretend I'm making a difference So in the political system. So I cherish it very much, and especially considering that, you know, we're, we're only going on 100 years here of women having it. Um, I, I, I find it uh, very much um, something that I value. So anything that gets in the way of that pisses me off. I mean, I won time for an election. My ballot got messed up. And I was ended up being registered back in my hometown. I drove three and a half hours to vote. That is dedication. And then three and a half hours back. But I stayed the night at my mom's house. So it wasn't like a you know round trip in one day. But still, I was like, I'm I'm voting. There's there's not nothing stopping me. So um, but yeah, this was not that was not the way it was there. And the company town system was in some cases meant to improve conditions in their lives. But usually it ended up just being another way for the company to clamp down and have full control over their employees' lives. And the antidote to this was seen as union Jesus Christ. <laughs> Unionization. There, I got the word out. Yay. And so the United Mine Workers of America, or UMW, got started organizing in the West in the year 1900. Now, this was kind of hard to do because CF and I would actually, they, they had a very progressive system of having a diverse workforce. But the reason for that was because they wanted to make sure that any organizers trying to set up anything, it was impossible for them because you would have to know three different languages and people couldn't talk to each other. You know, most of the people working side by side wouldn't talk to each other or couldn't because they all spoke different languages. So yeah, that was actually the purpose of that. You had first generation immigrants from Italy, Greece, and Serbia. And a lot of those in 1913 had actually replaced striking workers in 1903. So the cycle just keeps on eating people up. Uh, so they did manage uh, to actually get uh, some some collective bargaining attempts going on September seventeenth, nineteen thirteen, and these were their their demands. They wanted the company to recognize the union as the bargaining agent for the workers. So 
that that's that's really the first step. You really have to get that out of the way first. Otherwise, nobody's going to listen to anything else you say. They also wanted essentially what would amount to a 10% pay raise by altering the tonnage rate. So it was 2,000 pounds was the, the rate at which they got paid for every 2,000 pounds. Well, 2,200, they wanted it down to 2,000 pounds. So, you know, they'd have to make get less coal and get, you know, the same amount of money for it. They wanted uh, eight-hour workdays, which had actually been part of Teddy Roosevelt's 1912 campaign, but he lost to Woodrow Wilson pretty badly. Uh, Wilson got 41% of the popular vote. Roosevelt got 27 And so basically that amounted to, look how unbalanced our freaking system is. That amounted to 435 electoral votes to Roosevelt's 88. Do you know I looked up why we have a 40-hour work week once. And do you know what the honest-to-God reason is? Hmm, why? Eight hours for work, eight hours for sleep, eight hours for yourself. 24 hours, you get the weekends. There you go. Makes sense. No, it sucks. I was gonna, it never feels like that. It that is never true. feels like that. Like, I, I, I work usually 50 hours a week. I don't even think in a week I get eight hours to myself. Right? Like, <laughs> right? They don't factor in. Hey, you know what? I got to do grocery shopping. Got to do laundry. Mm-hmm. Got to cook. Got to clean. Got to mow the lawn. Whatever. Like, where's mu- yeah. a little bit of me time? It does seem to work better uh, sometimes. It depends on the job, I think. But the, the four-day um, weeks with, with longer hours, I know Jackson's done that a couple of times, and, and he's really enjoyed that um, because then you, you have that, that full extra day that's uninterrupted by work, and so you can devote yourself more to the things that you need to get done. So, yeah. And, well, and see, that's what I thought, too, because that's what I work. And uh, it is not the case because then it's just an extra day that they can force me to work overtime because I'm off. That's <laughs> why I said some jobs. <laughs> yeah, if, if, if it's a case like your employer do, doing that, then it doesn't work out. It just ends up being more work. Ladies, I'm going to work on my erotic novel selling. <laughs> and uh, we're just going to we're going to put all, all of our money in a big pool and we're going to go get that 14 million dollar crime castle and we'll all live there. Well, it's nice. big enough. We'll never see each other. <laughs> Scott sent us a crime castle in the Facebook and we'll, uh, message, and we'll have to post that uh, a link to that because we we do need to pull our money together, and we can all live there. It can be our it can be our crime commune, guys. I, I, like I insist this... that we must murder somebody, though. Jesus, Amber. I'm just saying, if we're living in a if we're living in a crime castle. It's not a murder castle. It's a crime castle. We can just, you know, commit some petty crimes. Okay, fine. Steal a pack of gum. I'll do 37 in a 35. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, the eight-hour days. Actually, some unions had been able to win that for their workers, including United Mine Workers in 1898. So it had been a while that some, you know, the, the people that they represented were able to have that, but not the people working for CFNI. Uh, the workers also wanted to be paid for that dead work. So if they had to do extra stuff in order to ensure that their removal of the coal was safe, they wanted money for it, which makes sense. They wanted um, people who would check the weight of the tonnage uh, just to make sure that their haul was accurate because 
there were some feelings that maybe when the, the nobody was looking, there were some thumbs not on the scale because that would make them be paid more, but maybe some scales being fiddled with a little bit. So they wanted to um, have the union or the workers actually elect weight checkmen in order to make sure that everything was, was on the up and up. This man has a lump of coal in his pocket. Beat him to death. <laughs> make him an example for the others. They also wanted to be freed of the bounds of the company town. They wanted to be able to say, I want to go to this doctor or that doctor. I want to live here or there, not be forced to live in the same place and forced to shop in the same store that is owned by the company. And also they wanted to abolish script, which is those uh, vouchers that uh, Scott mentioned earlier. And, um, and then also have the safety laws uh, that the state had in place for mines actually enforced. They weren't even ask, asking for new laws. They just wanted the ones that were already there to be paid attention to. The part where it says we don't have to die, that'd be great. Yeah, yeah, that part. Uh, this actually interested me. The, they called the company store the Pluck Me because they would get their feathers plucked there spending script. Ooh, I didn't know that. Yeah, I found that that interesting. That was a, a fun little side note. Uh, and then a song from that period that uh, that I found is just four lines. So you and I'm not going to sing it a tune. I, I'm not going to put it to a tune because I don't think I'd be able to manage it. All, and I I could have practiced, but I didn't. All right. So Monopoly keeps grasping for more and still more. They will soon own the earth through the company store. Hmm. Yeah, I always right? heard you load 16 tons. What do you get? Another day older and a deeper in debt. I just realized that's what that song's about. Yeah. Cold I'm mind. slow. There's even a line in that song. My soul belongs to the company store. The company store. store. Yeah. yeah, there it is. There it is. Yeah, I just mm -hmm. never really... I've heard the song like probably like eight times in my life, and none of those eight times that I choose to actually pay attention and analyze the lyrics. So, <laughs> so CFI and the other companies whose workers the union was trying to get raised up, um, these companies said no to these terms. So the union said, we're going to strike. So... In October 1913, uh, there was a statement made by Rockefeller Jr. to the vice president of CFNI, whose name was Lamont Bowers. Quote, We feel that what you have done is right and fair, and that the position you have taken in regard to the unionizing of the mines is in the interest of the employees of the company. Whatever the outcome, we will stand by you to the end. End quote. He's lying. He's lying. <laughs> that last part was bullshit. <laughs> I think and there's then, a hidden code in the podcast. <laughs> that same month, Lamont Bowers, VP Lamont Bowers, said to Rockefeller, quote, our net earnings would have been the largest in the history of the company by 200000 but for the increase in wages paid the employees during the last few months. With everything running so smoothly and with an excellent outlook for 1914, it is mighty discouraging to have this vicious gang come into our state and not only destroy our profit, but eat into that which has heretofore been saved. End quote. So, yeah, they're definitely, like, largest in the history, but they, they can't spare some safety measures and some money and not taking complete advantage of their workers. So, yeah. Mm -hmm. 
Now, before the strike even started, the local stores ran clean out of guns, ammunition, and dynamite. <laughs> that's not good. That's, that's, that's a bad sign, you guys. Very bad. Happy sign. Amber. Happy Amber. This might be the first time dynamite has shown up on the podcast. Why is it very the, many like, the local company store ran out of dildos and lube? Yeah. Although that like, would be terrifying, too, if they're getting ready to strike. I, I really wish that we could still just go to the store and buy dynamite. You can. Don't tell her. <sighs> oh, God, there's going to be so many things blown up. So many things. Amber, you and I so will talk things. privately Saturday. No, I know all about that. But like, if you could just go to the grocery store and be like, I'm going to get some dynamite and some bread. Like, that would be fantastic. So the strike began. And here is another issue with company towns. If you depend on your employer for your housing and you piss off your employer, you no longer have housing. So not great. Bad system. Yeah. yeah, very worker, bad system. T- terrible. It's absolutely terrible. It's it, You don't even have that time between losing your job and running out of money to set something up. So you have literally no safety net, and all the money that you've earned can only be spent in the place where you're no longer allowed to live. <sighs> okay. Makes saving for angry. retirement a little tough. Just a little bit. That's why well, it's a good thing you die in the mines early. I was just going to say. So the evicted workers set up a tent colony nearby in the town of Ludlow. They did some picketing. Uh, The union specifically picked sites for the tent cities that were near the mouth of the canyon. So the picketers could block any strike breakers. And those are people who are hired to basically take the places of striking workers Or it can also be any current workers who have chosen not to strike, and so they're crossing the picket line. You had 1,200 workers and their families in the largest of the camps, which was nicknamed White City, for two different reasons, the second one of which I don't understand. The first one was because the tents were white. Okay, sure. Yeah. And the the second one was because of white buildings at the 1893 World's Fair. White Did, wasn't a uh, white wasn't known about until you know 1852. <laughs> I mean, did they know it had been 20 years since the 1893 World's Fair? No. Did they? Did somebody tell them? No. Okay. But they had a. They even had a baseball diamond there, and the strikers were able to. Um, they hunted. They fished. They kept poultry in order to supplement the food supply that they bought with the union benefits. So the union would actually subsidize them living for as long as it could manage in order to help the strike along, which only makes sense. Yeah. The strike was led um, by a former boxer, John R. Lawson, and the camp's kind of mayor was Louis Ticas. Louis Ticas. Louis Oh, I'm going to have fun saying that on my drive to work. Louis <laughs> <laughs> I'm easily amused. 
So the companies would usually hire detective agencies. Please hear the quotes around those words, which was hired guns and thugs, essentially, in order to deal with these strikers. And in this case, they hired the Baldwin Feltz Detective Agency. Me and Knuckles, we're detectives. (laughs) (laughs) That was excellent. The detective agency um, had an armored car with a machine gun mounted to it. This was all kind of cobbled together, too. It wasn't like you're imagining in your head where it's super, you know, like Mad Max or something like that. Well, maybe Mad Max was. I haven't seen Mad Max. I don't know why I'm comparing things to that. (laughs) It's not like the Batmobile, okay? It's there we go. It's not like the Batmobile. I have seen movies of that. Um, I sound so old. Um, but they called it the death special. They would raid the camps and sometimes just randomly, you know, like I got a gun. I need to do something with that gun. What should I do? Oh, I'll shoot it into a tent. I can't see what I'm shooting at. There might be a person in there. Oh, what was that scream? Oh, probably somebody dying. Oh, what's the, this over here? What's what's going knuckles, on? Knuckles, the only way to find out if there's a person in that tent, shoot it full of holes and then go around to the other side and see what the silhouette is. <laughs> No, don't touch that flap in the opening. No. I but like how do- many oh, yeah. how many detective agencies do you think there would be if they all had like armored vehicles and machine guns? More or well, less. Again, it was really cobbled together and I think just for this particular instance or maybe it was something they did at every um strike that they they worked at, but yeah, I think it it wasn't something that cost them a great deal of money. They just kind of did it from scrap, except for the machine gun, which hopefully no, I, I, I hopefully it was from scrap, so it killed fewer people. <laughs> so yeah, the shooting into the tents had an effect on the miners when people would end up killed or maimed because of it. They decided, all right, well, I'm not safe in the tents. I have this space underneath the tents, so I'm going to be in that space. So they would dig pits under their tents or within their tent and they would sleep there and just uh, going going back underground you know so Is, am yeah. i the only one that would think it'd be kind of cool to live in like an underground lair it depends on the um the amenities of the lair <sighs> okay okay i'm a I'm a person who needs a few amenities. I'm not super demanding, but I need more than um, a, a pit dug out. I mean, if it's for my safety, okay, but I'm not living there permanently, you know, just for these 10 minutes that I'm being shot at, and then I'm going to go find an Airbnb or something. I'm talking like a James Bond supervillain-esque underground lair. Oh, oh for sure. Yeah, I, yeah, I yeah. do that. Absolutely. Okay, of course. Cool. Yeah. Okay. It's not just me. No, not just you. All right. So now we're going to talk about a man named Carl Linderfeld. So now we're going to talk about Carl Linderfelt, who had been in the National Guard. He was part of a skirmish at the end of October that killed both a few miners and a few mine guards. So some casualties on both sides. They had to retreat and he'd been trying to get the National Guard in for a a while now. And so he used that occasion to telegraph the governor and say, quote, the only solution is troops, end quote. Governor really didn't actually want to, but this convinced him. Now, Linderfelt was a piece of fucking work. He once got pissed off because an officer's horse, not even his, but an officer's horse, tripped over some barbed wire. 
So there was some random boy nearby, and that was who got the brunt of his anger. He hit the boy and yelled, quote, I am Jesus Christ, and all these men on horses are Jesus Christ, and we have got to be obeyed, end quote. Jesus Christ. <laughs> Indeed. <laughs> Indeed. And Jesus Christ over there, and Jesus Christ over there. Wow. Um, yeah, right? Uh, like I said, piece of work. He also really got um, he got his jollies from torturing the strikers. He and his men would make the strikers dig what they thought was their own graves and then also write goodbye letters to their families. Real cute stuff here. Wow. Yeah. Um, then it, the detective agency was supplemented in late October, early November by the Colorado National Guard as uh, as Linderfelt wanted, um, which at first was kind of cooled things down, but not that did not last at all. And then eventually martial law was set up. I did read I read one source that said CF and I actually paid their wages but I'm not sure if that's true because there were some other sources that said that eventually money was running out for the National Guard and we know money wasn't running out for CF&I, so. And yeah, they would they would also do the same. They, they followed suit with the detective agencies. They would raid and shoot up the 10 cities and they also uh, started up some militias. Now, they were led by another piece of work. There's pieces of work everywhere here, guys. Uh, I'll translate for those who don't speak Christy amazingly fucking total pieces of shit knobs yes that is a, a very accurate translation uh john chase who was the adjutant general of colorado he would have men deported he would arrest people with no charges his own literally his own subordinate would later say in court under oath quote it is a matter of supreme indifference to General Chase whether men arrested and held by him are guilty or innocent of a crime. End quote. He is a piece of work. He is indeed. Thank you. He's a shit knob. <laughs> Where are you, fucking shit knob? <laughs> then we have a rather famous name come into the scene, Mother Jones. She was a famed labor leader. Uh, she came to help organize, and Chase arrested her. He plopped her out a train, said, get out of here and don't come back. Mother Jones was not, she had, she'd seen some shit in her day. She was like, I'm not afraid of you. So she came back. So he proceeded to have her held at a hospital with armed guards for two months, wouldn't let any visitors see her and refused to give her any access to doctors. She was 77 at the time, by the way. that Those are the toughest. Like, if you've made it to 77, pussies don't make it to 77. Hard, like, just hard to the fucking core, fuck the world maniacs. They're the ones that make it to 77. I would rather have a 77-year-old man on my side than three trained soldiers. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. 1,000 women demonstrated in an attempt to get Mother Jones freed. They marched through Denver. Chase was on horseback, so they're marching. He's on a horseback. He kicked a 16-year-old girl and turned to his men and said, quote, ride down the women, end quote. Wow. Yep, yep, yep. Six that, will, women. that will keep the crowd from procreating. 
<laughs> Six women were injured after his men charged the women with sabers and also ran them down with their horses. Sabers. Yeah. Um, Mother Jones really, I think, put it best, referring to Chase when she said, quote, his veins run with ice water, end quote. That sounds about right. So that's a nicer way than I would put it. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Same here. Same here. He was he was a bastard. He was a, a, one of the he and, and Linderfelt were like the bastard of bastards. Like those two, I have a feeling probably got along real well. There's easier ways of dealing with people. For example, I have uh, I I'm planning revenge on somebody right now. So and in about three months, I'm going to be able to get them. <laughs> yeah, that that's one way. I planted marijuana seeds in his backyard, and in three months, I'm going to kill the cops. Okay, <laughs> please, please do um, edit that out. Maybe <laughs> he doesn't listen. <laughs> Fuck him. Yeah, but we never know who does. Um, but like okay. that's the, that's the type of person that like he somebody should cut off his dick carve it into a spoon, and then feed him his own feces with it. Wow! That was some really clear imagery. <laughs> I'm just saying. That, Amber. That's not, that guy. <laughs> I'm not disagreeing with you at, at all. I'm just stating on the quality of your imagery and the... <sighs> You're not getting that out of the... your head. <laughs> The vivacity of your ideas. I've thought about this. It's, uh, yeah, it's vivid. So the National Guard also, in addition to just randomly going and shooting at tents, would help the company bring in strike breakers and protect those strike breakers from the strikers so that work could keep going at the mines. That's the company's main goal is keep work going, churn the bodies in, churn the bodies in. And then on March 10th, so this had been going on for several months now, since October. Someone finds a strike breaker's body on the railroad tracks. It is declared a murder, but whether these, this person was bludgeoned to death or was drunk and fell on the railroad tracks depends on who you ask. And so blame for this death was laid at the feet of the strikers. So the adjutant general of the guard, good old Chase, um, he said... Raise the tent colony. And I don't mean lift it up. R-A-Z-E. Just d destroy it. And so their timing was just spectacular. When they came to do this, uh, a few infants had died in the previous days. And so there was a funeral that the strikers were attending. But Chase is not the type to let a little thing like babies dying stop him. From No, he would just run them over with his horse. No, probably, yeah. yeah. I mean, I've got a horse and you're a baby. What do you What do you mean? What are you crying for? All right, that's over. God. Only solution is a baby horse. <laughs> yeah. So the strike was actually mostly broken at this point. And so the governor took most of the guardsmen out of the region because the state auditor had union sympathies. And so he was like, I'm just going to keep all the money for the guardsmen here with me and not give it to them. And I, that kind of tells me that maybe CFNI wasn't actually paying for the guardsmen, but who knows? Maybe it was half and half. I don't know. 
Um, so they only kept one company there, which was just really, it wasn't even a real company of guardsmen. It was a few guardsmen and then mine guards with National Guard uniforms and uh, our mutual enemy, Carl Linderfeld. With a so, name like Linderfeld. I know, right? Like, that's a Nazi name. It, it is, quite. Colonel Linderfeld, take, the, take them and run down the women first. So on April 6, 1914, Rockefeller goes to Congress to testify against the strike. And he basically says, we don't want outsiders. So that would be the union organizers and bargain bargainers interfering with our perfectly happy employees. <laughs> so here's a little exchange that happened. Um, Rockefeller said, our interest in labor is so profound and we believe so sincerely that that interest demands that the camp shall be the camp shall be open camps and we expect to stand by the officers at any cost. And the chairman replied, and you will do that if it costs all your property and kills all your employees. Rockefeller's response was, it is a great principle. So that happened. Mm hmm. Another person needs their dick chopped off. Yeah. There's a lot of people with their dick getting chopped off tonight. <laughs> yeah, right? So six days later on April 20th, uh, the, from the remaining company of quote-unquote guardsmen, three of them went to the tent city and they said, hey, you have a guy here against his will, so we're demanding that you release him. So uh, Louis Ticas, remember he was kind of the camp mayor, Did he I goes... Guess. He goes to meet up with the major in charge. And this is all, as far as I can tell, pretty much just a diversion so that the militias can get their machine guns set up. And the miners, they see that going on. So they grabbed their guns and picked out a spot to hide along the railroad tracks. Then there were three explosions. There's some of that dynamite for you, Amber. Mm-hmm which Linderfelt later said he was calling for reinforcements. So uh. he was using dynamite to call for reinforcements. I often use dynamite to call for reinforcements. <laughs> I'm going to start. There's telegraph, maybe. Carrier pigeon. Light the fuse on my reinforcements. <laughs> <laughs> so then after the explosions... That kind of seemed to get everything started because you've already got a tinderbox here and then you have big explosions. So I think everybody assumed on either side, it, definitely the miners assumed, well, they're blowing our shit up. And so the, the shooting breaks out. Um, some women and children ran north and hid in a word that I have never known, if I'm going to be able to pronounce correctly. Arroyo? Ariel? O-R-O-Y-O? A-R-R-O-Y-O. It's like a kind of like a, a canyon, a crevasse. There we go. They hit in a they hit in a crevasse. Yay. Sure. My butt they, crevasse. Yeah. Um, others went and hit at a pump station, but there was a group that went into the pits under the tents. So um there was shooting all day. Casualties at this point from the shooting included a militiaman, several strikers, a bystander, and an 11-year-old boy who he and his parents came out of a pit when they thought it was all over because the shooting had quieted down 
And then the shooting started up again. And also some dogs and chickens shot by the militia. All told, 13 people shot and killed. Never come out of the pit. Always stay in your little underground lair. Um, it's about to be, don't do that, don't do that. Because pretty soon, the camp was on fire. There was, this was actually witnessed, um, there was a train going by, and the brakeman said he saw a uniformed man lighting a tent on fire. Heat rises. If you're underground, you're safe, aren't you? No, you're still not safe. Damn it. Linderfelt and his men then proceeded to charge the camp. And his men were like, hey, we're here and they've got stuff, so let's loot. They got, among other things, a bicycle, a suitcase, an umbrella, a sewing machine, and an accordion. Hey, everybody. Let's loot. (laughs) Let's grab some random shit. And whatever we get, we have to make a Rube Goldberg machine out of it. I, I, I like to think that, like, <laughs> the guy was there going, like, I swear to God, I meant just play, like, the stringed instrument. I didn't, didn't mean take these people's stuff. Yeah. Yeah, oh, right? Lord. So Linderfelt said he didn't know that people were hiding into the pits, in the pits, until they got to the camp. And then he said that he and his men tried to rescue them. However... His soldiers were later setting fire to the tents again, so I kind of doubt that bunch of bullshit. I doubt that bunch of bullshit as well. <laughs> yeah. So it's like, well, we're going to try to rescue people from the fire that we set, but oh, can you, could you guys in the pit, could you just wait like three seconds? I got to go light a fire over there. He's out of matches. In one of the cellars, the tent cellars, there were four women and 11 children hiding in the pits. One of the survivors later said, quote, the tent over us caught fire and blazed up big and the smoke commenced to come down on top of us. The bigger children tried to climb up out of the cellar and they took hold of the burning floor and their little fingers were burned and they fell back on top of us, end quote. That is hard to read out loud. Mm -hmm. Third crying on the podcast. Mark it. <laughs> that is hard to read out loud. Holy shit. It's one thing when you're copying and pasting a quote and you look at it and you're like, yes, I understand. I, I, I've subsumed this information. I, I've analyzed it. It's a whole other thing when you're reading it out loud because the imagery gets a lot stronger. Okay. All right. I'm okay. Okay. I'm okay. I'm okay. Do you want to talk about something else for a second? Yeah, I'm good. But I actually, if I'm going to take this opportunity to crack open another drink... <laughs> That's a good idea. <laughs> That's the sound of me dealing with my trauma. <laughs> <laughs> oh, goodness. So, I'll get back to it in a second. I just got to pour. I could drink out of the can like a normal person, but no, I have to have my fancy goblet. Pinky's out. Pinky out. I have a okay. cucumber sandwich crust removed. <laughs> That does sound really good right now. God Um, damn it, Christy. (laughs) I know, I'm all over the place tonight. Okay, so, all right, so this is horrifying, horrifying scene. Most of the occupants of the tent cellar fell unconscious. Two of the women escaped, but uh, the rest suffocated. So two women and 11 children died in that pit. Um, And... 
So actually right now, while I'm still in this emotional place, I have it for later in my notes, but right now I'm going to name the children altogether that died in this whole thing that isn't even totally over yet um, uh, because I feel like their names should be said, even though I'm probably going to mispronounce some of them, but I'm going to do my best. Elvira Valdez, three months. Cloriva Pedragone, four months. Frank Petrucci, six months. Lucy Petrucci, two and a half years. Joseph Petrucci, four years. Lucy Costa, four years. Conofrio Costa, six years. Rogerlo Petragone, six years. Mary Valdez, seven. Yulila Valdez, eight. Rudolph Valdez, nine. And Frank Snyder, 11. Uh, this fucking changed the tone of the podcast dramatically. Sorry, I had to. I felt like it was necessary. It, fucking, I feel like it. Hit the fucking brakes on the fun train, Christy. I know, I know. I really did. You, you could hear the squealing from like of the of the brakes. Jesus Christ, everything's horrifying. Ah, I, my mind didn't even go there, Christy. That was you. You're That's because in, I'm you're, I'm in it. I'm in it fully right now. Like I said, I didn't think of that. Amber. And so, like, everything is that. Okay. All right. Amber so, did. You know what? I'm, I'm actually thinking as she was listing those off and, like, the ages, I was like, that's a lot of fucking kids. I might welcome death at, at that point if I was trapped in a pit with a bunch of little kids. Um, Jesus Christ, Amber. <laughs> wow. Okay. Um, so, um, as for Louis Ticas, Linderfelt had him taken captive along with two of the strikers. Actually smacked him on the skull with his rifle so hard that it snapped the stock. And it's some say that he ordered Tikas to be executed. The common belief is that Linderfelt said to Tikas and the two other strikers, all right, you guys got to run. And then had his men shoot them in the back. That Real sounds about right. Yeah. Fucking class fucking act there, Linderfelt. <sighs> All told, the standoff was 14 hours, which is just, you're in, you're in a war zone. You're in a war zone. That's what it is. It's a battle raging on all around you. It's pure hell. That, um, is, that is frightening. That is so frightening to yeah. think of. Like, you just wake up. This is the thing. This is the thing that really gets me. At any moment... Like, these people didn't wake up and think that this was going to happen to them. Like, it was just going to be another day for these people. Yeah. And for, and then they're put through 14 hours of hell. That's, yeah. It's a terrifying prospect to think that your life can turn around that quick. Absolutely. Yeah. It, it really, or, or end that quick. Yeah. Uh, the New York Times, the very next day, they recounted the scene Quote, the Ludlow camp is a mass of charred debris and buried beneath it is a story of horror unparalleled in the history of industrial warfare. In the holes which had been dug for their protection against the rifle's fire, the women and children died like trapped rats when the flames swept over them. One pit uncovered the day after the massacre disclosed the bodies of 10 children and two women. That same day... Rockefeller replied to a telegram from VP Lamont Bowers. I'll have the cherry cheesecake and the most expensive bottle of wine you got. Yeah, yeah. 
Uh, quote, telegram received. We profoundly regret this further outbreak of lawlessness with accompanying loss of life. And you know, when he says lawlessness, he's actually talking about the miners instead of the people who were actually lawless, which was the militia. That he hired. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. He hired terrorists. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, the strikers then proceeded to call for reinforcements. 300 armed miners joined them from uh, other tent colonies. And along the way, they were like, you see that telegraph and telephone line? Hey, hey Bob, grab the scissors. <laughs> snip, snippity, snip that bitch. <laughs> fuck, fuck communications. <laughs> Another 300 came from Colorado Springs. In Denver, there was a demonstration of 5,000 people demanding that the Ludlow National Guard militia be charged with murder. Other unions sent help, including a cigar makers union that sent 500 men and a garment workers union that sent 400 women in to act as nurses. There were even protests in New York, including in front of Rockefeller's office and also the church where this mofo gave sermons. Why were they have why was he giving sermons? What authority is he? I have a lot of money, therefore I'm God. He seems to think so. Oh, yeah. absolutely. And at that protest, there was a minister protesting, and the police were like, eh, I think you need to be unconscious, and they clubbed him. <laughs> damn yeah right the strikers uh fought back and it was called the 10-day war they totally wrecked half a dozen mines they were dynamiting burning things that they racked up about the same body count as the militiamen but unlike the militiamen they didn't kill children um and the rallying cry was remember ludlow Then President Woodrow Wilson sent in federal troops, and that seemed to do the trick as far as the strike was concerned. So according to Rockefeller, what happened at Ludlow, as he stated in June 1914, so just about two months later, quote, There was no Ludlow massacre. The engagement started as a desperate fight for life by two small squads of militia against the entire tent colony. There were no women or children shot by the authorities of the state or representatives of the operators. While this loss of life is profoundly to be regretted, it is unjust in the extreme to lay it at the door of the defenders of law and property who were in no slightest way responsible for it. I don't think you can tell how angry I am. Yeah, you can. Yeah, you can. I, th- I think so. But that was spoken like a true politician because he's like, the women and children were not shot. They yeah. weren't. They were burnt well, to no. death. Like <laughs> there, was, there was one 11-year-old boy who was shot, though. Oh, he doesn't count. <laughs> but that's a child. That's not children. <laughs> I know. He, he, yeah, it, it's a child, not children. So, like, he was being very, very just, like, politically smarmy. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, he, he's got just no scruples whatsoever and no care for anything but his piles and piles of Scrooge McDuck money. Well, McFuck you, Rockefeller. Anyhow, uh, 
They did try to keep the strike up, but uh, by December, the union really didn't have the money to keep financially supporting it. I mean, as I said, there's costs. You have to pay for people to at least have some subsistence, you know? So uh, by December, it pretty much was given up. And there were just indictments and charges all over. The- no, there weren't. There weren't. No one, no one was indicted for anything. People died. Children died. And no one was indicted. Not even, not even a thought. You you had orders from the whitest, richest man in America. It's fine. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And um, remember when I said uh, to, to good old uh, Vice President Bowers, I said, no, he's not. He's lying. Well, they pretty much forced him into retirement. So I warned you, buddy. I told you. And the public relations scene here is not looking good for Rockefeller. He tried to squirm his way out, and he pretty much did. Um, he gave some concessions over the next year, and it does seem like in later years, he slowly, slowly came to understand the need for unions and kind of sort of admit it. But it does seem to be in the softest, most unuseful ways possible and like he wasn't like oh like like committed to the cause he was like yeah i guess i can kind of see their point but can we change the subject is there something else we can talk about i have a sermon to give because apparently that's a thing that we let rich people do i guess i guess unions. i mean are okay. is that what scientology is <laughs> yeah right yeah I, now, I have beef with scientology oh we all do so Absolutely. Um, The last survivor of the Ludlow Mine Massacre. She was three months old at the time of the massacre. She uh, evacuated with her mother and siblings. Her name was Erminia Padilla Daly. And she actually died on March 4th, 2019, 105 years old. Holy shit. Wow. She absorbed the lives of everybody else. <laughs> yeah. Um, I have a couple of quotes from historians. Howard Zinn called this quote the culminating act of perhaps the most violent struggle between corporate power and laboring men in American history. And the writer and historian Wallace Stenger called it, quote, one of the bleakest and blackest episodes of American labor history, end quote. And then I have one little side note here. Um, I don't know this for sure. I'm just kind of putting two facts together and assuming that they're related. Now, the strikers wore red bandanas around their necks, so they were called rednecks. Well, I was curious, so I went to Adam online and which if you don't know you can look up the etymology of words it's very fascinating if you're a complete dork um which i am and there was some usage in the u.s prior to this of the word redneck but it did not come into common usage until 1915. Hmm. i think it's because of this in case you haven't figured that out you probably have, because you're not slow like me. <laughs> now, has anybody here ever heard of the Moorwood Massacre? Where was that? This was about 40 minutes away from where we're sitting. Hmm. 
This was uh, in Westmoreland County. It's uh, it's right outside. Of, I think the town is called Pleasant Hills. That sounds familiar. Yeah. So, um, I, I, Amber, I think you took your daughter to the uh, Living Treasures. Yes. Donegal. Yes. So about literally about 20 minutes away from Living Treasures, uh, nine Coke workers were shot and killed during a strike. Uh, oh, my God. Why did they want? What did they want? Higher wages and an eight hour work day. Yep. That's all they wanted. The uh, the 10th Regiment of the National Guard came in under the command of uh, Captain a uh, Captain Lore, and they fired several volleys into the into the crowd killing six strikers and then fatally wounding three more. Uh, if you go down to uh, Route 981 near the Route 119 overpass, you'll see the Moorwood Massacre. And the, uh, the guy that we got to go boo to, believe it or not, Henry Clay Frick. Oh. So he was, he was the dude who was... Calling the shots? Yes, yes. Henry Clay Frick. He was the, uh, uh, I don't know if, uh, I'm sure the people out here know of uh, people out here. I'm having trouble making word today. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Henry Clay Frick, he was a chairman of the Carnegie Steel Company. Mm -hmm. So I'm sure people knew about Andrew Carnegie. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, wow. Well, I mean, that was Ludlow. Before we move on to the Columbine Mine Massacre, do you guys have anything else on Ludlow that I missed? Um, nope. No. Okay. All right. Well, we've talked about one massacre, so why not talk about another one? Uh, now we're up to three. <laughs> yeah, actually true. Yeah. This is Massacre 3 of the night of our Massacre Marathon. <laughs> oh, you know what? I actually, I do have a little tiny piece about Ludlow. Um... It's, it's now a ghost town, but uh, the massacre site is owned by the United Mine Workers of America, and they erected a granite monument in memory of those that died. And the tent colony site was designated as a National Historical Landmark in 2009. Nice. Oh, wow. That's great. Nice. So I, I, I did think that was kind of like a nice, not a nice ending, but at least a nice gesture after all is said and done. Yeah, yeah. Took a while, but yeah. <laughs> All right. Uh, so, the Columbine Mine Massacre. Now, this is in Serene, Colorado, so we're still in the same state. Another company town. The population was around 1,000, and the Columbine Mine was the only operating mine in northern Colorado. So, Columbine Mine was the only operating mine in northern Colorado, and... Now we're moving to 1927 from 1914 and pretty much all the same, pretty much all the same. Nothing has really changed. Um, In 1925, there was an economic downturn. So the mine owners in Colorado actually cut wages. So I take it back. Things got worse. Things actually changed for the worse. Yay. (laughs) Right. Backwards progress. It was still 10 to 12 hours and uh, working day and six hour, uh, six days a week. And the conditions were still dangerous. Now, by 1927, feelings toward unions are not super positive among the general public. 
Uh, you had the Sacco and Vanzetti case that caused a lot of ill feelings. That's the most famous one, but there are other cases. Um, and we're going to definitely going to hit up Sacco and Vanzetti sometime. Um, that's a big one. So that caused a lot of ill feelings among people. Enter the IWW, the International Workers of the World, a.k.a. the Wobblies. Um, I had that last Saturday, a little bit too much to drink. (laughs) (laughs) They are um, kind of stepping into UMW's role because UMW had faltered some in the intervening years due to some internal strife. Although, they stuck it out. And to this day, they still exist with 80,000 members. And so, but the, uh, the, the Wobblies were making some strides among various industries. So they petitioned the government and tried to get mine owners to sit down with them. They, when that didn't work, they made threats uh, and nobody was paying attention to them. And the owners were, were not acknowledging them as representing the miners. And you also had both the governor and the press in Colorado against the miners. So it was time to make some formal demands. But we have a character to talk about. A character. 19-year-old Milka Sablich, a.k.a. Flaming Milka. Flaming, uh, her father, Flaming Milka? She wore bright red. <laughs> It didn't mean what it, 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 words change. Um, yeah. Her father was a coal miner. The family had moved to Trinidad, Colorado in 1907, just before she was born. So she could have been there, which was the area where the Ludlow massacre was for the strike that happened there. Uh, around age seven and she she got into it you guys like seriously she she would go and give speeches she did a fundraising trip to new york um and she would get into physical altercations during the strike to come she a lot was actually on the shoulders of women here because the strike leaders were getting arrested and or deported so milka and uh the other women they had to do a lot of the organizing and they had to get in there and and they did they absolutely did um she was arrested and held for a while at one point and the authorities said well you can get out if you don't go to any more strike meetings and she was like now stay here i'm cool i'm chill I'm not good. So the uh, Wobblies made formal demands on September 4th, and then nothing was really done or said. And so on October 9th, the miners around Boulder did a walkout, and then others in the area followed suit. And then the strikes spread throughout the state. And again, you had women joining in. In Walsenburg, Colorado, 15 women were arrested in the first week of striking for picketing. Um, they were offered release and they said, not until the men we were arrested with are freed as well. Love it. Love it. Right Love on. Sticking by their men. Absolutely. And it wouldn't, wouldn't even necessarily be their men. It's just any men that were arrested with us. We want like we want the same treatment. as like we should all have the same treatment. And you know so- what though? I actually saw something interesting about that. So the people that were getting arrested were refusing to leave because yeah. if they held a space in the jail, that meant that another fellow miner could not go to jail. 
And so it's better if they stay where they are and keep the spot and let everybody out stay out. Like, <laughs> they were going to fill the jails and not leave. And <laughs> so they couldn't arrest anyone else. I love that. Of course, the Boulder Daily Camera referred to these uh, female occupants of the jail as, quote, chattering women, end quote. Fuck you, Boulder Daily Camera. Uh, <laughs> stupid name for a newspaper, anyhow. Let's see if they're still around. We'll tweet at them. Yeah. So, um, the owners of the mine in Serene, the Columbine mine, they were like, we're not having this. We're not, the, the strike is spreading. We're going to cut everything off here so that it doesn't spread here. So, they cut off Serene from the outside world. They had a barbed wire wall around the town. They had uh, just two gates through which you could enter the town. They had a searchlight, armed guards, and all this did was make it a focal point for the strikers. On October 17th, the Wobblies headquarters in Walsenburg was raided by local vigilantes who burned the records and uh, told the Wobblies to get the hell out, escorted them to the highway, and then by early November, the governor was saying that all wobbly leaders would be arrested, which people were, as, as Amber said, left and right. In late October, our heroine, Flaming Milka, led a group <laughs> of 250 strikers who charged nearly 40 company guards, 25 of whom were mounted and 13 of whom had bayonets, because apparently it's the French Revolution. And um, a mounted guard broke her wrist. So she was injured in that particular confrontation. Because of all the mining, um, or no, because of all the striking, there wasn't as much mining. There we go. It's been a long night. And It, uh, it has. It has, hasn't <laughs> it? I feel it feels- you, Christy. That, I, I know that it's, it's a phrase. It's a long night. It's usually just like, oh yeah, it has. I fucking felt that in my soul. Yeah, I'm I mean, not gonna laughed. lie. I've I cried. <laughs> felt that in my soul. I coughed up a burp. <laughs> I burped up a cough. <laughs> so yeah, because of the lack of mining, there was a coal shortage that started in the area. On November seventh, hundreds of picketers gathered at Serene and filled the road, basically refusing to let the strike breakers pass. Um, one did manage to get through because he was like, well, I know how to make a path, and he pulls out his gun. And they were like, okay, you can go through. And the Columbine mine was then shut for the day, but it should be said, um, the owner of the, the previous owner of the Columbine mine, was he had died recently. His daughter would make sure that the strikers in the morning would get coffee and donuts. So that's pretty nice. I, that's something. Um, now my diet maybe she was hungry yeah. for coffee and donuts now. Yeah, right? Um, the owners reopened the next day, but they were only at about half power um, because the picketers were like, you know what? You know what's bigger than human bodies? Cars and trucks. They got about 150 to 200 cars and trucks, and they packed them all together to blockade the road. Then the National Guard comes in again. At this point, they're just basically doing flyovers to report back. 
the Boulder County Sheriff and several deputies at this point were sworn in as state officers in order to give them more leeway and authority because this is Boulder County where the sheriff and deputies are. The mine was in Weld County. Who wants so. to be a cop? Raise your hands. You're a cop. You're a cop. You're a cop. Everyone's a cop today. That literally happens later. <laughs> that literally happens later. <laughs> it's so crazy. I hate it. Um, on November 12th, there were 500 to 600 picketers led by a mother of 16, Mrs. Elizabeth Baranek. Uh, she was waving an American flag and there was also a drummer and they forced their way through the gate and demonstrated on the streets of Serene. Two days later, on November 14th, uh, there was a confrontation between the officers and the strike leaders. And the officers tried to arrest the leaders and were then attacked. So Columbine closed temporarily again. At this point, they're like, all right, fine. You're going to keep closing us down. We'll set up some machine guns. And so they did that in Serene. And the governor said the guards could shoot the strikers if they got into Serene again. Jesus. Yeah, it's it's getting pretty tense here. Death On penalty November... for parking violation. Yeah, right. On November 20th, there was a rally over 1,000 attended. Uh, a woman named Mrs. Robinson spoke and reassured strikers that the machine guns would never be used. The Wobblies also had some officials speak, and they got everyone fired up. So the next day, November 21st, five to 600 unarmed, unarmed, I'm going to point out, I'm going to say it one more time, unarmed strikers, along with their wives and children, were at the gate. Did they have any they weapons? They had, <laughs> uh, I believe, let me check my notes here. Uh, no, they were unarmed, it says. I just thought that they, you know, couldn't open pickle jars. <laughs> Uh, there were three American flag bearers at the forefront. Uh, on the other side, you had 21 law enforcement officers from various departments, including members of the Colorado Rangers, which were no longer the Colorado Rangers. It was This was a state police force that was um, all volunteers, and it had been disbanded the previous April, so they shouldn't even be doing shit. They were dressed as civilians, but armed like soldiers with rifles, riot guns, machine guns, and tear gas. This is scary shit. Does um, it remind you of anything? Just uh, Yeah, yeah, a little, little bit, a little bit. Maybe, you know, like our own country going to war against its own people. Yeah, yep, 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 yep. That sounds about right. No, our country wouldn't do that. No. This happened in <laughs> Afghanistan, Colorado, right? <laughs> Colorado, well, Afghanistan. Colorado, Stan. <laughs> yeah. So the strikers demanded entry into Serene and they said, hey, you have to let us in here. It's the law. That post office is public property and some of our kids go to school in Serene. So you can't keep us out. And uh, reportedly a ranger said, quote, if you want to come in here, come ahead, but we'll carry you out, end quote. And I believe he means in a body bag. I just thought, you know, it was going to be like a little piggyback ride. <laughs> Yeah. Now, I read one article that said there were two sides to this story, and so I'm going to give them both, even though most of the other articles only mention the one. Um, one story has Elizabeth Baranek going to the gate with her American flag at the ready, just by herself, 
And she asked the guard, can I and I alone enter to march through the streets of Serene? The guard said no. And she was like, all right, well, I'm done being nice. This, you see this fence? That's no obstacle. I've, I've birthed 16 children. You think I can't climb a goddamn fence? And so she started climbing the fence before she could get up to the top. The guard hit her in the head with the butt of his gun. She falls to the ground, knocked out. The crowd then comes to get her and protect her from the guards and not to storm the gates. The other story is that uh, the, a leader of the Wobblies, Adam Bell, took the Mrs. Baronek role, essentially approached the gate. They fired warning shots from the other side. So he summons the rest of the crowd and says, hey, it's okay. They're only firing blanks. We're good. We'll be safe. And then he gets hit on the head. And then, of course, as in all stories, we have two separate stories. One, there's also a third story where it's both of them leading the charge. So uh, one way or the other, shit started to get real, real. And all hell broke loose. The miners charged the gate. The The guards unleashed tear, gra- tear gas grenades on them. Um, then it's, it's, it's really just absolute chaos. And the miners, when they're fighting, um, all, they're just fighting with what they have, which is pocket knives and rocks. Um, and pocket meanwhile, knives and rocks. Pocket knives and rocks. What are you taking to the fight? Uh, Lint and a Pop-Tart. I have a pebble. I have a handful of pebbles. Ooh, you can do some damage. Pocket sand. Pocket sand. I would take a pocket full of cock rings because those can go pretty high velocity and do some damage to eyeballs. Just saying. (laughs) She knows this for a fact. We've seen her Amazon wish list. (laughs) Pocket full of cock rings. So the Rangers. my new band. The Rangers are actually like, you know, beating on the miners and even Elizabeth Baranek, they beat her up. Um, And then when the miners fight back with their pocket knives and rocks, uh, a few of the Rangers get some minor injuries. There's like a broken nose. Somebody like gets a slash on the cheek and they retreat. Uh, So the the striker, they can they can give it, but they can't take it is essentially what's happening here. The strikers charge the gates even more. And the head of the Colorado Rangers orders his men to fire. The machine guns were heard from a mile away as they shot into the crowd. And one striker was carrying the flag of the United States, which was riddled with 17 bullet holes and also just all bloody, just completely bloody, which really is, um, I mean, the symbolism is a little obvious, but I'll take it. Yeah. Wait, wait. Are, are you talking about those machine guns that they didn't have? Didn't have. Yeah, them. yeah. Those, those, those <laughs> are the ones. Those are the exact ones. Yeah, they definitely did not uh, riddle a flag with bullet holes. It was, it was the strikers throwing stones at it. Amber, you know those stones; they'll rip right through a flag. Flimsy. <laughs> it was made of paper towels. <laughs> hit that! Hit that flag with sand and just shredded it right apart. <laughs> right? Gosh. The pop tart did a real fucking number, let me tell you. <laughs> um, huh. I love it when Scott makes a joke and then I have to say something like six people were killed, but I have to stop laughing first because that's really inappropriate. <laughs> <laughs> six people were killed. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so no, actually, no. Six people were killed and dozens were injured. Now, 
that was the massacre. But as I discovered when I dug a little deeper, it wasn't quite over. So there were some attempts at mediation, but still discontent. And on the evening of Christmas Day, the chief of police in Trinidad, he's like, okay, we've got some transient strikers. They're sleeping in the hall where they meet. Well, we're not going to have that. So he and four cops on Christmas Day, they go, they kick down the door. The strikers are up and ready and they attack. The police come at them with rifle butts, but soon enough, the strikers overwhelm them and the police have to surrender. So now the police and somehow the acting mayor are prisoners of the strikers. They Hooray! have popped guys. <laughs> so Ma- fired- Merry Christmas, everyone. It's a beating. Yeah. The fire department comes out and they're ready to turn on the hoses and flood the building. And if this is your municipal Christmas party, I think you need a new party planner is all I'm saying. Uh, The wobbly leader comes and he talks 60 men into giving up and they say, okay, we will as long as nothing is touched. So they surrender and then the state police go in, tear everything apart and take all the records. Because, of course, why live up to your goddamn word, you assholes? The mayor puts out a call in the paper for all able-bodied men to be commissioned as special police officers. You get to be a policeman, and you get to be a policeman, and you get to be a policeman. I know that's an old meme, but it kind of feels right. (laughs) Yeah. Only about 30 minutes old. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, altogether, 300 came forward, and they got white armbands that designated them as, you know, special police officers. Any special police with an armband is a bad idea. Yes, this is bad. This is bad. But remember, it's also 1927 or 28. Don't care. So 27 to 28. Yeah, you're right. This symbol Um, means good luck. You're about to hear. This group included local leaders, uh, veterans of both the Spanish-American War and World War I, even some United Mine Worker miners who had gone on strike in the Ludlow Massacre. So um, I guess opinions change. And possibly it was said in some places, but it's not definite. The KKK and the Knights of Columbus. That's a weird combination. Yeah, I know. Um, And they all marched against the IWW, the Wobblies. Uh, They captured 40 miners and marched them to jail. They were going to charge them with assault, with a tent to kill, and assault with a deadly weapon. These horrible criminals, they found weapons that were the policemen's. <laughs> and that was it. They couldn't find any other weapons. They were like, I saw a Pop-Tart over there, but I don't think that could do much. Like, <laughs> Your Honor, I knew that this criminal had a weapon on him because I gave it to him. exactly yeah i mean there's some sand on the floor here he could probably do something with that maybe the building is made of bricks if they pry one of those out that could be a weapon now you're thinking now you're thinking i swear to god i swear to god i saw the glint in his eye and he he this man he wore glasses i knew at any moment he could take them off and put them up to the sun and burn me very badly (laughs) <laughs> very, very badly with those glasses. And that's why I punched him in the face, cracked the glass, and blinded him. 
<laughs> Lucky for the miners, they did not come up with any of our bullshit excuses. Uh, so they just charged them with vagrancy and violation of health ordinances. And basically all the other strikers who had managed to evade arrest ran for it. One more battle broke out on January 12th in Walsenburg. The State Industrial Commission had come to perform hearings. 700 people showed up. They said their, their purpose in showing up was to show that they had goodwill towards the commission and also to show that they were passionate about the cause. Like, we'll, we'll show them our numbers. They were ordered to disband and were actually doing so, but there's always that guy. And that guy broke away and fired three shots at a state officer. Once again, you had deputies sworn in. You had machine guns mounted. The battle lasted about an hour and two men were killed. Things did calm down eventually and 88% of the workers voted for a return to work and the state police returned to Denver and in May 1928 the Rocky Mountain Fuel Company agreed to recognize UMW as the bargaining entity for the miners they said no more blacklisting of strikers and said uh, we'll also follow the mining codes that are probably there for a reason so that, unless you guys have anything else, is the third massacre of the night, the Columbine Mine... Ma no, that's way too cheery. The Columbine Mine Massacre. There we go. Okay. Uh, thank God that it all got sorted out before anybody got hurt. Right, right? It was just a simple misunderstanding and everything was fine. Oh, did you guys have anything else on that one? I actually have a poem that I thought you would have. I figured I've uh, tested people's patience with poems too much recently. And so I think I probably, that was probably where my head was at. was like, I probably shouldn't do this again. I've been doing this. I, I need, I need to have a, like an allowance of like, like one poem a month. And I think I've hit it already. Amber test their patience with the poem. <laughs> I, I was going to take the pass and, and not do that because of that. I just had assumed that we would be. Uh, we, we post it on the social media. Okay. That works. There we go. So All right. If you want to see the poem, make sure you come to our uh, Instagram, Facebook, Twitter. We are old timey, crimey in all of those places. And um, Amber, send the poem to Scott and I so we can, whenever you get a chance. Um, so yeah, do that. Do you guys have anything else in my, before I continue on with my spiel? Spiel away. I shall spiel. Uh, also, don't forget our Patreon, patreon.com slash oldtimeycrimey. Come check out our offerings there. And, you know, we have the old tiny crimeys. Amber told us an amazing story today. And Scott and I are just both kind of traumatized by her telling of it. You so. fucking sick little monkey. No, it's not. It's a love story. <laughs> And it is in a very twisted way. So, yeah, that um, that was excellent. And there's a whole back catalog there. We're creeping up closer to 40 uh, of, of old tiny crimeys. And they're all, I mean, every time we talk about one of these, they're always fascinating because it's, it's amazing. This little bite-sized, snack-sized crime which is always so interesting, all the little facts you find. So, yeah, um, there's that. Uh, if you're not the subscription type, if you just want to leave a buck on the nightstand, seriously, a buck is fine. We won't be offended. Literally a dollar. Honestly, 
it would make my day. And that's so weird and sounds kind of self-demeaning to say, but at the same time, I would like be like, we haven't gotten any donations on the PayPal. Be the first. I be will the first. suck a dick for a quarter. Oh, don't say that. You'll, t- you'll get takers. You really shouldn't make promises, Scott. You really shouldn't make promises. Uh, I'll, <laughs> so, I'll so find yeah, a lollipop named Dicks or something. I don't know. I'll, find, I'll Bell Delphine my way out of it. And we will also Second time today that got brought up. <laughs> That's weird. Um, so, uh, so yeah, um, oldtimeycrimey at gmail.com. Be the first to PayPal us. And yeah, that's, uh, I don't, tell a friend about us. Rate, review, subscribe, blah, 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 blah. Um, what's everybody doing this weekend? I'm playing Transformers Devastation on my brand spanking new computer. And Woo! I'm going to ignore everybody. And I'm just going to sit around and smell bad. <laughs> <laughs> I'm already doing that without the ignoring everybody part. Just the sitting around and smelling bad at this moment. It's hot in here. <laughs> uh, I am ordering takeout, which for most people, they're like, whatever. But like, I'm usually not allowed to order takeout, but my husband will be busy all weekend. So takeout will be had. Awesome. Do you have a plan for takeout? Um, well, I have more than one day. So um, they were gone yesterday. So we ordered pizza and wings. Okay. And they're going to be gone um tomorrow so tomorrow is either chinese food or sushi we might end up having to flip a coin on that um so that is that our game plan right now but subject to change carter came home with taco bell so she already she knows she knows the game like marcus is not here go get takeout (laughs) (laughs) i love it um i I keep on looking at my nails and being like, I need to paint them because they're actually like growing because I'm not doing very much. And so my nails aren't breaking and I have tons, tons of nail polish and I just never sit down and do it. So I think I'm going to finally pamper myself and sit down and and do my nails. I have a couple ideas in mind because it's never just paint the nails. You know, there always has to be like some design aspect in mind too. So I can never just, it can never just be half an hour paint your nails. It has to be an hour and a half of like nail art going on. <laughs> treat yourself. Absolutely. I'm going to treat myself. But so it's each that, fingernail, that. Each fingernail is one part of a 10 part mini series about <laughs> Princess Wei Lang and well, how, the, the she, how she courted the handsome King Wei Zhang. And it's like, it's like this fucking. 10 piece fucking mini series on your fingers. <laughs> Please do that. Absolutely. Well, the thing that most listeners probably don't know, I never I don't know if I really ever really mentioned it is my mom owned and worked at a nail salon for 18 years of my life. So, um that yeah, was a pretty big part of my life and in fact when she went on maternity leave, I kind of worked as a receptionist and did some secretarial type work to help lighten the load and sometimes I would get bored and I would paint my nails each a different color. And then I would uh, half an hour later get bored with that. So I'd take it off and paint them each a different color again. <laughs> so that was that was my day. <laughs> you know, along with some inventory and scheduling appointments and blah, blah, blah. But yeah, so um, so yeah, that I'm definitely going to do my nails. And um, I have some other plans. I have to finish the next episode of Detectives by the Decade. That's going to be a fun one. Uh, Scott's going to get to show his range for that 
so uh, in the voice work. It's a Kenmore yeah, oven. That. <laughs> Not that kind of range. He's a he's a Kenmore oven. He's a, I can't think of appliances right now. This was a this was an episode and my brain is broken. I can't do the joke. I'm gone. No, right? <laughs> what the hell? My brain. It just doesn't. My brain. At one point, I remember having a joke about smelling butter, and I couldn't figure out where it was going, and I just had to abandon it. I'm glad that, that you abandoned it. <laughs> I forgot that you'd already done the Oprah Everybody Gets to Be a Policeman thing. Yeah. <laughs> because my brain, this was like, so it's so much when you're dealing with like political stuff too, you know? Yeah. It's, it's, it's somehow becomes so much heavier and it's so much more complex. And I know that there's stuff that I've missed or it didn't really hits or complexities that I didn't pick up on. But yeah, it's been it's been an episode. Also, um, I think the temperature in this room is probably at the point where my brain is boiling. So there's that. So yeah, I guess it'll be just Amber and uh, Amber and me next week. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I will be um, somewhere. Oh, okay. I'm gonna <laughs> stop having a stroke and continue now. <laughs> okay. All right. That has been our episode. Um, we're probably all going to go pee and also be in rooms that are cooler than where we are, except for Amber's in a basement. And so there's that. Um, but yeah, thank you so much for listening. We hope this was interesting, educational, entertaining. You laughed, you cried, you you sang, you I, I can't do words anymore. I'm just going to stop. Thank you for listening to our filthy words. Bye. Touch yourself <laughs> while you think about me. <laughs> <laughs>